Everybody loves a good whodunit, an unresolved plotline, an unexplained happening. The mixed martial arts community is no different, and there's a whole host of mysteries that have baffled fans and fighters alike for years. In January, prior to UFC 257, the firing of Atman Azaitar over safety protocol breaches had everyone wondering what the hell was in the bag left for Atman by a man who shimmied across four balconies to drop it off in his room. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. Today we're going to take a look at ten more confounding conundrums from the world of MMA that have yet to have satisfactory explanation. I'm Tommy from MMA on point and hot off the press Jocko Fuel is back and back with a banger. All Jocko Fuel supplements are now available for subscription purchase. So using the exclusive code MMAOnPoint20, not only are you getting 20% off your subscription at originmain.com slash jocko-fuel, you're getting free lifetime shipping with no need to reorder once you're subscribed. Anyways, more on that later. For now though, these are the 10 biggest unsolved mysteries in MMA history. Number 10. GSP's UFC 158 weigh-in. While some of the more outlandish claims by Nick Diaz following his loss to George St. Pierre at UFC 158, such as being poisoned, muddy the waters a bit, the one complaint that still holds some weight is his claim that GSP was allowed to weigh in over the 170-pound limit, a title-stripping offense. Diaz posted a video taken in secret of a UFC executive explaining during fight week that the commission in Quebec would round down any decimal during weigh-ins. So if you came in at 170.9, you would officially be considered 170 flat, which is exactly what was GSP's announced weight. When the UFC had the video taken down, down, it only fanned the flames. The champion himself couldn't recall, but later said the scale may have read 170.4. Now, it should be noted that the Quebec Commission provided proof after Diaz filed a formal complaint that this was a long-standing practice and afforded to all fighters on all cards, including prior UFC title fights. It just wasn't well-known or publicized until Diaz brought it to light. And it's true, there are never fighters announced as point anything on any of the commission's cards. It's whole numbers only. But that still doesn't answer the question of what exactly GSP weighed on that night. Despite Quebec being the home of four St. Pierre title fights, 158 would be the last, and the UFC has held only one show in the province since. Makes you wonder. Number 9. The Crazy Horse Tape Backstage at Pride Shockwave 2005, Faderley Silva's warming up for his title defense against Ricardo Arona. Sitting nearby is Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, who fought earlier in the night. Some unpleasantries between Bennett and Silva's coach Cristiano Marcelo erupt into a brawl that ends with Crazy Horse being put to sleep with a triangle choke. The video of the infamous incident, initially posted by Shootabox, ends as Charles begins to wake up. What is perhaps more interesting than the video itself, though, is what Bennett claims happened immediately afterwards. Crazy Horse alleges that he stood back up and took a shot at an unsuspecting Vanderlei, knocking him unconscious, before being chased out of the arena by the Shootabox team. Now, if you're familiar with Charles Bennett, he says and does some pretty wild shit, which on the one hand lends itself to this story being completely false, and on the other hand, makes the idea of him being insane enough to actually do that entirely viable. It should be noted Bandy did fight and win later that night if he was KO'd. Bennett's tail may seem tall, but he does have independent corroboration. Matt Lindland has claimed in interviews that he witnessed the entire incident and that it happened just as Bennett alleges. When I saw, when I saw Crazy Horse jump up after he just got kicked by Vanderlei and knock him out cold. The testimony of a single witness is by no means proof, but it's enough to leave some doubt as to whether or not something did happen after the video cuts. Number 8. Mike Goldberg's Sudden Departure Just two days before UFC 207, the promotion announced that the show would be commentator Mike Goldberg's last. Goldie had been the UFC play-by-play -play man since 1997, and fans would only get two days' notice before his departure. Not only that, but there was no send-off, not even a mention of it on the broadcast, and Goldberg himself was not even given a few moments at the end to say goodbye. What the hell happened? Why was Mike fired so abruptly and with so little fanfare. In early December, before we knew Goldie was out, Dana White hinted at what he called a commentary dream team being formed. Around this time, there were rumors in the MMA media sphere that networks 
networks like ESPN, of whom new UFC owners WME, IMG were attempting to court, wanted Goldie and Rogan out and replaced with a more traditional modern team. Chael Sonnen, who is good friends with Jim Rome, let slip on his podcast that the UFC was in talks with the sports personality to replace Goldberg. By the way, thank fuck that did not happen. Was Rome part of the dream team White had hinted at? All evidence would point to yes, but there are still so many questions here. Why was the change so abrupt? Did Goldberg do something? Why not in any way celebrate Mike's career? Was he on the outs with the new owners? According to Goldberg, he was told nothing had given no explanation. If they wanted to stop the hype beast commentary, why was Joe allowed to stay? Maybe one day at a media scrum down the line, Dana will explain it all. Until then, let us all be grateful for the incredible work of John Anik. Number 7. Sonnen's 151 Scheme did ol' Uncle Chael try pulling a fast one on John Jones at UFC 151? The event was canceled just 10 days prior to fight night when Dan Henderson was forced to pull out of the main event against Jones due to an MCL injury and the UFC couldn't find a suitable replacement. They offered the fight to Chael, the P stands for Opportunity Sonnen, however JBJ declined. His coach Greg Jackson citing the relationship between Sonnen and Henderson as teammates, believing Chael could have been preparing for the bout all along. It should be noted that while the injury was disclosed on the 22nd of August, it occurred sometime three weeks prior, something Sonnen very likely could have known. Although two weeks before 151, it was announced that Sonnen would be moving to light heavyweight in a bout against Forrest Griffin at UFC 155. What has fueled this mystery further is Sonnen's claim on an episode of UFC Tonight nearly a year later that he and Henderson had conspired against Jones, a statement he would go back on in 2016, claiming he said that just to troll John and that he was wholly unprepared that Dan was upset he implied his involvement. According to his coaches directly after the cancellation, Hendo had every intention to fight and thought the injury would heal in a few weeks, thus the 11th hour revelation to the UFC instead of when the injury occurred in early August. While a good amount of fans believe that Sonnen did prepare for that 151 bout, there's enough evidence to the contrary, like the fact that he was not a part of Dan's camp and was not training a team quest during the month of August, or that it would take Joker levels of planning and luck for Sonnen to know that the UFC would even offer him that bout, considering every available top 10 205er was offered the fight first. It seems pretty implausible, especially considering Sonnen didn't throw his hat in. The UFC came to him at 9pm that night in desperation. If he was so prepared, why wasn't he knocking their door down? as soon as Hendo pulled out, something he would know about if they had colluded. Unfortunately, with Sonnen being an unreliable narrator and a known trickster, this will likely always remain a mystery. Number 6. Who Leaked Lesnar's Return? The incident of Ariel Hawani scooping the UFC itself on Brock Lesnar's UFC 200 return saw the reporter temporarily banned for life from UFC events, and the question remains to this day how the hell he did it. According to Dana White, the leak nearly blew up a quote, huge relationship. Ariel himself said White claimed backstage that Lesnar was upset about the leak and that the deal was possibly ruined. Joe Rogan would say he heard that the UFC warned Hawani before he posted the story, but if he did, there would be firings at the UFC to snuff out any potential moles. Hawani dismissed Rogan's account entirely as nonsense, saying there was never any convo prior to his breaking the news. Ariel would not give up his sources, but did mention it was confirmed by multiple parties. Hilariously, Lesnar would tell ESPN about the matter, I don't know who that is, I don't do Twitter, which would seem to work against White's claim that Brock was upset or that he was the leaker himself. But it could have been a member of his team, or Mark Hunt's, or someone in the UFC. It's not exactly a stretch to think that the sport's biggest journalist would have a few connections here and there. These sources remain hidden for now, but as they say, the only way two people can keep a secret is if one of them is dead dead, which is how the Lesnar news leaked in the first place. Number 5. Vitor's Suspicious Lab Results A leaked document stemming from a blood test administered to Vitor Belfort on September 1st, 2012 could have or possibly should have derailed a second straight UFC pay-per-view. That whole UFC 151 debacle, Vitor would end up being the direct beneficiary of it when after a long convoluted mess of an August 23rd, it was announced that Belfort would be fighting John Jones at UFC 152 a month later. The lab results showed free testosterone levels over twice what is normal for a man of Vitor's age. The results were sent to the UFC on September 4th. We know this because three years later, in an article for 
Deadspin, Josh Gross revealed that in a clerical goof, some paralegal accidentally sent Vitor's lab results to a whole bunch of fighters, managers, and other third parties in the MMA sphere. Oops! Later that day, everyone who was sent Vitor's suspect lab results would receive a follow-up message from UFC General Counsel Ike Lawrence Epstein, basically telling them that disclosing any of this information would result in legal action. Now, it is known that Vitor was on TRT during this time period, although even that wouldn't be revealed until 2013. And Ontario's Athletic Commission, where UFC 152 was held, told Bloody Elbow essentially, all questions about the lab results should be directed to the promoter, as they do not require testing for illegal or performance-enhancing substances. The UFC 100% knew about this suspect test result weeks before 152. The mystery is what was done about it. Experts who spoke on the matter said that the result in and of itself wouldn't lead to a fighter being pulled necessarily, that there are so many variables and potential follow-up actions, that there's no way to know if that leaked result means Belfort was cheating. The question is, did the UFC take those steps to clear Vitor? The promotion has been radio silent, and chances are that will remain the case. Number 4. The UFC London Brawl It is perhaps the most famous street fight in all of MMA lore. London shoot fighters Lee Murray was in an alley outside a club following UFC 38, with a few of his boys alongside Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, Pat Miletic, and some of their buddies. Everyone is hammered, although in some accounts Lee is sober. They're waiting on a bus to take them back to the fighter hotel, yada yada yada, a vicious brawl ensues amongst all parties, and in the midst of it, Murray allegedly KOs the light heavyweight champion of the world, the UFC's biggest star, Tito Ortiz. Accounts of this legendary incident are numerous and buried. According to Tito, he was never KO'd, only dropped to a knee because of a recent injury, but he popped right back up. Matt Hughes, Pat Miletic, and Murray himself all claim Ortiz was out cold and being soccer kicked. It should be noted, however, that Hughes' account is simply what Miletic told him as he was not there. Although, in another variation of the telling, Hughes claims his brother was there and that that's where he got the story. Chuck Liddell, who by every account was backed up against a wall and KO'd at least five people, he said Pat had already left by the time Murray and Ortiz squared off, and that Tito was never knocked out. It should also be noted that the Iceman was apparently obliterated, so it's unclear how reliable a witness he might have been. Militich claims Dana White told him they were going to get the security footage and sort out what happened, but that nothing ever came of it after that. It's likely we'll never know, as all the major parties seem to have different accounts, and the security footage has never emerged online. Perhaps a greater mystery, though, is what happened to the 32 million pounds that Murray stole during his 2006 Securitas Depot robbery that is still missing to this day. Maybe he'll tell us when he gets out of prison in 2035. Number 3. Mike Tyson in Pride in early 2006, Pride was dealt a death blow and they knew it. They had lost TV distribution in Japan. In less than a year, they would hold their last event. Desperate, the promotion began looking for new revenue streams, including attempts to tap into the US market with Pride 32 and Pride 33. One of the other schemes they'd concocted was a series of exhibition boxing matches between Mike Tyson and fighters like Mirko Krokop and Fedor Emelianenko. To skirt any issues with Tyson's past, the fights were to take place in Russia and Macau. Pride desperately wanted to break into the untapped Chinese market, and with a global star like Tyson, it was believed they could get a foothold there, potentially saving the promotion. Tyson was signed to some sort of contract, but the details are murky. He made an appearance at a press event, but the wording of everything was very vague. He wouldn't commit to saying he was going to fight anyone, just that he had joined Pride. Ultimately, these events would never take place, and there's never been a clear indication as to why. Speculation was that Tyson vanished, just flaked out, as in 2006 he was a bit of a mess, but that's never been confirmed. There could have been issues with Pride securing a venue in China, or getting their talent on board for the bouts, just like Pride, the answers to what happened here are long dead. Number 2. Hoist over Hickson 
It's one of the oldest mysteries in all of mixed martial arts. Why is it that the Gracie selected Hoist to compete at UFC 1 and not Hickson? There is, of course, the popular answer, repeated by Hoist himself many times. He was hand-chosen by his father because of his slight build. It would make Gracie Jiu-Jitsu look even more impressive if a skinny guy won the tournament. Hoist has also joked that he was chosen because he's the best looking. If you ask Hickson, he told Matt Sarah on the UFC Unfiltered podcast that it was because Hoist was easy to manage, whatever that means, and that he was told as the champion of the family he should sit back and wait for a real challenge should one come up. Of course, Hickson would go on to compete in Japan instead in 94. UFC co-founder Art Davey tells a different tale. He says that Horian, who was another co-founder in Hickson's older brother, he was on the outs with his sibling over Hickson taking some of his students and training them privately in his garage. And so as punishment, he wasn't selected. A similar version of the story appears in Clyde Gentry's book, No Holds Barred. There have also been theories that Hickson wanted too much money. The truth of this one is probably somewhere in the middle, but unless somebody has a video of the selection process, we'll probably never truly know. Number 1. Pride's Second Death in March 2007, UFC parent company Zufa LLC purchased Pride Fighting Championship from Dreamstage Entertainment. According to owner Lorenzo Fertitta, the plan was to continue to hold Pride events in Japan with the occasional UFC crossover. But by October, the newly formed Pride FC Worldwide Holdings was disbanded, leaving the promotion dead. The lack of Japanese TV distribution following Pride's scandalous fall and bogus fighter contracts are usually cited as to why Zufa abandoned the market. There is, however, another theory that the Yakuza, a Japanese crime syndicate with heavy ties to the original Pride forced Dana White and the Fertitas out. In 2009, White gave this somewhat vague statement about the situation. I say this all the time, but they're going to kill me if I ever go to Japan, right? But there's some bad guys in the fight business over there, okay? And uh, they make it hard to do business there. The Yakuza's heavy involvement in the Japanese entertainment industry means it's likely Zufa would have had a shadowy co-promoter, which has historically been a sticking point for DFW and the Fertitas. Were the rumored threats of violence because Zufa planned to exclude the Yakuza from their new promotion? Or were they not welcome in the first place? Further fueling questions about the Japanese market was the emergence of Dream by former Pride execs only four months after Zufa left. Did the Yakuza purposely kill the new Pride to cut Zufa out of the Japanese market? Or was the venture simply not viable following the toxic demise of DSE's version of the promotion? Whatever actually happened, Zufa's flagship UFC brand has only visited Japan five times since the death of Pride. I just want to give a gigantic shout out to Origin and Jocko for sponsoring this video. They are always our go-to for clean energy here at MMA On Point, and I'm super excited to share their subscription offering for all Jocko Fuel supplements. If you're a diehard for their all-natural, sugar-free, keto-friendly energy drinks with no artificial colors, sweeteners, or flavors like I am, shout out to the new Afterburner Orange, you can now order these beauties by subscribing. That means by using the exclusive code MMAONPOINT20 at originmain.com slash jocko-fuel, you not only get 20% off your subscription, but you also get free lifetime shipping if you're a U.S. resident. Once you're subscribed, there's no need to reorder. You're good to go on living your best life without a hassle. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Set. Huge shout out to the legendary once and future king Tomas Welsh for editing this video together. Follow him on Instagram at BigBeatVisual. That's beat as in the band from Doug and not a forceful strike. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.